Good morning. This is Hannah Moore. I'm an attorney with New York Prosecutors Training Institute, NIPTI. This morning, I have the pleasure of speaking with Timothy Kohler, Executive Assistant District Attorney at the Richmond County DA's Office, and Michael Kaluza, First Assistant District Attorney at the Oneida County DA's Office. The topic we will discuss today is protecting your record. We will talk about what that means, why you should care about protecting the record, and then we will identify some areas where prosecutors should be particularly conscious of protecting the record. Tim, if you could tell us first, what does it mean to protect your record? Well, Hannah, I think what that means is not only to try the prosecution's case in a way that memorializes important things that were done, so that when an appellate court reviews that record, if there's a conviction, it puts the appeals bureau in your office in an advantage position, and it also puts the appellate court in a frame of mind that a complete record was made with respect to certain things that were done in a given prosecution. It's not necessarily ethically grounded, but it's an important sort of practice advisory to memorialize the record pre-trial and during the course of a trial. If, in fact, the defendant has given up a right or a defense attorney is perhaps unaware or forgetful of a particular right, and that may cause a post-judgment issue, I think the wise alert prosecutor is going to identify that as something that won't be an issue at the moment, at the time of a plea or at some time during a particular stage in the trial, but may cause some appellate problems later on. And rather than letting that go unaddressed, I think the prosecutors looking at the long term will identify that as an issue on the record and make sure the record is complete or something is set on the record if defense counsel is not alert enough or the court's not alert enough to identify that issue as something that is best preserved on the record. And Mike, maybe you could add here, one of the things that Tim touched upon is this is something that your appellate attorneys will care about. So why should trial attorneys be conscious of this? It sounds like it's really just an appellate problem. It's anything but an appellate problem, primarily, because the person at the switch, the person in a position to perhaps clarify the record or correct the record is going to be the trial attorney. Once the record is made, it's to a certain extent carved in stone, and it is a record that you have to live with. It becomes an appellate problem, but it is first a problem for the trial attorney. And unfortunately, ambiguity in the record or silence in the record as to something that goes to a fundamental interest of the defendant in receiving meaningful representation very often operates on appeal to our distinct disadvantage. The other reason why I think is that very often at the trial phase and among those who try cases in prosecutor's office, we're very concerned with our side of the courtroom and our side of the equation. We need to be equally concerned with the other side of the equation as well. We need to take ownership of both sides of the equation to a certain extent. If you think about it in these terms, the, the very famous language of the Berger case, Justice Sutherland now often quoted, guilt shall not escape nor innocence suffer. That's sort of an equation in and of itself, and prosecutors certainly have to be concerned with both sides of that equation. I think that translates well to the issue of why this is not strictly an appellate problem, why this is not strictly a problem for the defense attorney, but it is something that assistants at the trial level have to be ever conscious of, creating a good record clarifying a record where necessary. 
And perhaps, Tim, could you give us some examples? Are there particular phases of a case that hold sort of treacherous grounds for prosecutors that that folks should be aware of? Could you talk maybe a little bit some areas where people need to be cognizant that perhaps there are issues that they may unwittingly be walking into that they should be aware of? Well, I mean, one is the line of cases that came from, I believe, the Supreme Court decision in Fry and Lafler, and that is if a plea offer has been rejected, you want to make sure as the prosecutor that that's memorialized somewhere on the record. You want to avoid a possible ineffective assistance claim downstream where a defendant says, well, I would have taken that plea, but my lawyer never told me about it. And then the defendant goes on, is tried, convicted, and gets a sentence that is greater than that which was offered in the context of the plea bargain. So although an individual assistant might think that that's the defense attorney's job and there is responsibility there, I think if you look at that long-term goal of not only a conviction that you believe is predicated upon competent and honest evidence, but also to have it sustained later on, you want to think long-term. You want to think about preserving the record And even if you may be frustrated at the moment saying, well, this really isn't my job, it is your job. Anything Mm -hmm. that was towards sustaining a lawful conviction, a just conviction, is in the interest of the district attorney's office in all its working parts, and that includes a trial assistant. Another area, pre-trial, and then I'll turn it over to Mike, is in the area of motion practice. If a defense attorney wants to file a motion that's really late or wants to serve alibi notice or psychiatric notice, Although, if you played according to Hoyle, you know, a card game, the court could preclude the defendant from filing those motions or asserting those defenses. Judges want to give a wide berth to lawyers who file such late notices or late motions or late claims, because ultimately that's going to be given tremendous scrutiny on appeal and the whole thing back again, either in the context of an ineffective assistance finding or possibly the defendant was not afforded due process during the course of the criminal prosecution. So you got to think long-term. I think that's the watchword of the day here is don't think of the immediate. You have to think of the immediate as a prosecutor, not exclusively so. You have to think of the long-term. Mike? Yeah, Mike, do you want to touch upon some of the things that happen later on? Sure. Talking about issues, for example, in jury selection, Occasionally, a defense attorney and their client will disagree as to tactical matters, which jurors should be seated, which jurors should not be seated. And this generally happens when the attorney-client relationship has, to a certain extent, broken down, and that can happen for a number of reasons. However, ordinarily, when things are running smoothly on the other side of the courtroom, disagreements as to strategy don't bubble over onto the record. When they do, it's important for the assistant handling the case to understand that there are a very short list of what the Court of Appeals in the U.S. Supreme Court calls fundamental decisions related to representation that are exclusively retained by the defendant. And that is a fairly short list. A defendant retains ultimate authority over the decisions about whether or not to plead guilty, whether or not to waive a jury trial whether or not to testify in his or her own behalf, or whether or not to actually take an appeal after a conviction is had. Those are fundamental decisions where if defense counsel and defendant disagree, the defendant's judgment prevails. The vast lion's share of other types of more strategic considerations, smaller considerations along the way, ultimately 
rest with the discretion of the trial attorney, such things as whether or not to testify before the grand jury. That is ultimately a decision that's made by the trial attorney. Whether or not to peremptorily challenge a particular juror or find another juror or accept another juror and seat another juror, those are examples of strategic decisions that are made along the way that the defendant ultimately doesn't have veto power over. The problem arises when disagreements on those lesser decisions are visited on the record openly and ultimately the judge is put in the position of having to make a decision. The reflex default position of a judge who's not informed as to the case law that's applicable in this area might be to default to what the defendant wants to see happen. And there are various cases in which that's found to be reversible error. So the assistant himself, knowing which of those decisions ultimately the defense attorney retains veto power over and educating the court when that arises, those are important things to know in order to clarify the record and to protect the record. And I think we just have a minute or two more here. And on that note, one thing, do you have any tips on how assistants can educate themselves so that they feel comfortable and confident enough to, you know, perhaps correct the court or correct defense counsel? Because I think that's a tricky area here is ensuring that the assistants feel confident in their knowledge of the law to be able to have these discussions and to correct things as necessary. So do either of you have any suggestions as we close this up about how assistants can educate themselves about what issues to look out for? I think that when an assistant starts trying cases, they are very focused on the moment. I don't think that's an affliction. I think that that's just a natural way that an assistant or any trial lawyer begins to shape their talents get their sea legs in the courtroom Mm -hmm. and feel comfortable within that adversarial setting. And sometimes the relationship with the bench might be more adversarial than the relationship with opposing counsel. So I think the first thing is experience is a tremendous teacher in this regard. Uh, Secondly, I think you have to know the law because before you can employ a strategy or is this something that is fundamental that I must put on the record or perhaps plug in a gap that was created by defense counsel not saying something or doing something, I have to know the law first, and then the next piece is the strategic consideration. And then I would say the third thing, Hannah, is you have to speak to the elders, because on those delicate balancing issues of strategy, do I or don't I say something under these circumstances, you go to someone who's more experienced, who's tried more cases, whose judgment and experiential skills are more developed because they've been doing it longer, and you talk to them to see whether this is a circumstance where you do or don't or should or shouldn't put something on the record where defense counsel perhaps is being silent or employ a strategy that's in the overall interest of the prosecution. I agree with everything Tim just said. Those are all extremely important. And as to additional resources, in addition to what's in your very own office, Prosecutors Encyclopedia is a great resource to go to for information materials, cases, and other written materials on the whole issue of ineffective assistance of counsel and how it can rear its head in different areas of a criminal case. The other thing that I would recommend is for young assistants to think a little bit more globally about what constitutes the record. Think of the record, not with a capital R, consisting of what's taken down in a courtroom. 
think of it as extending to, for example, your own case files. How carefully are you documenting extra record occurrences and conversations and other things that may come up in a criminal case? Because ultimately, often these cases can boil down to some future 440 litigation. And generally speaking, we fare much better, our profession fares much better when we've taken rigorous notes about various occurrences that may impact our conviction in the future. And those things become critically important in a 440 hearing where you're trying to reconstruct things that happened off record at some point during the pendency of a case. So that would be another area where I think you really need to give some thought to how carefully you're documenting everything that's occurring. Great. Thank you both for taking the time to speak with me. Unfortunately, that is all of our time for today. But before we go, I will mention to our listeners that this conversation with Tim and Mike has been made part of NIPTI's Ethics Watch, a quarterly ethics bulletin that is publicly available from NIPTI's homepage. So if you are interested in seeing more ethics conversations and decisions, do check out NIPTI's Ethics Watch. Thanks again, Mike and Tim, and I hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks, Anna. Thank you, Hannah. 